afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics. I'm Jackie Stein, and as always, I'm here with Professor David Just. Hello. Professor William Schultze. Hello. And <laughs> Seth Olson. Hello. <laughs> William Schultze, or is it okay if I call you Bill? Please. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Bill and Seth are our special guest stars today. Bill is the Kenneth L. Robinson Professor of Agricultural Economics and Public Policy here at Cornell's Dyson School. He serves on the Environmental Advisory Council of the New York Independent System Operator, and his research and expertise in auction design has contributed to the Northeastern State's Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and brought ideas to the Industrial Advisory Board meetings for the NS. NSF-funded Engineering Research Center. He's, he's also good at cutting trees down. <laughs> In addition, he's also good, or at least good, threatening to. <laughs> good with the trees, and he holds expertise in experimental and behavioral economics, public environmental and resource economics, as well as applied microeconomics. And, and Seth here is a master's student at the Dyson School for Applied Economics and Management. He has been working with Bill, and they have a recent paper that Seth did some work on in David's class, actually. So this paper is about tax compliance and injunctive and social norm messaging. Can you guys tell us a little bit about this paper and the history behind the research? Sure. So the genesis of this paper is the idea that tax compliance is important for the funding of the public good. So all governments all over the world, they are funded by taxes, and the greater the tax compliance, the more money they have to spend on the public goods such as road, infrastructure, health, education, all those good things that we all rely on. And currently, the system of tax enforcement can be rather expensive process that involves a lot of audits. It's expensive in terms of costs, as well as it can be a long process in terms of the amount of time. So if there are any cheap, very sort of easy ways to nudge taxpayers into compliance, then that could have kind of a windfall, additional dollars to fund the public good. So that's the mm -hmm. idea that is kind of behind this sort of this type of research. And I don't know if Bill, you have anything you'd like to add there? Well, from the perspective of behavioral economics, the mystery is why do people pay taxes? Because the, prob the probability of audit is so low, and I'm not encouraging anyone to cheat on their taxes, but the probability of audit is so low that, in effect, if people were completely selfish, it would be irrational not to cheat on your, on your taxes. So long ago, I barely remember, Jim Alm uh, and I, along with Gary McClelland, a psychologist, wrote a paper based on some experiments called why do people pay taxes trying to answer this question which really got us into the sort of the behavioral economics of, of why people do that and and there is actually pretty wide compliance with tax I mean I know there are people who uh, avoid taxes or, or declare themselves uh, you know independent from the states they won't pay it at all but it, it's uh, it's a vast majority of people who actually pay do we know if they're actually honest or not the an that's why we do experiments, yeah. because uh, there is there there is very very limited evidence. Because you could do a survey and ask people, "Are you cheating on your taxes?" <laughs> you could even do it double blind and reassure people that. Uh, but but people are going to be very unlikely to admit that they're cheating on their taxes because there are serious penalties involved. Yeah. So that's one reason we turn to experiments as to why people pay taxes. And as someone who had already published in this area, I, I have a story where 
<laughs> I, I still feel almost guilty as a, an economist that I actually paid taxes. So the story is as follows. <laughs> I, uh, I had a graduate student who was the former uh, assistant to the Minister of the Environment in Venezuela. So this was before Chavez, when it was still a real democracy. And they had their EPA and they were interested in the latest ideas as to how to get get pollution reduction. So they invited me down to give a week-long seminar and I had them do some experiments on, on tradable permits and things like that. And at the end of the week where I had a great time and I'd never agreed on any fee at all. They paid my flights. I got to look around Caracas in Venezuela. So and it was a, a grad student of mine who arranged it. They handed me an envelope when I was on Friday afternoon. And I looked in the envelope, and there were all these crisp $100 of bills, and there was $12,000 in this envelope, <laughs> right? So I'm in agony, right? The, you have to declare any amount over $10,000 that you bring into the country. And the question was, here I am, a nerdy-looking college professor, and <laughs> the odds of my being caught with $12,000 in my pocket right, of, of my jacket, my CD jacket, are very unlikely. So I'm debating it, and I'm debating it. And what I ended up doing was, after agonizing, you know, that's like $4,000 in taxes, right? That's yeah. significant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I finally felt, I just can't do it. I can't cheat. And the reason I finally realized was, I, I perceive myself as an honest person, my self-image. I thought of my then eight-year-old daughter, you know, my sweet daughter. How could I ever tell her that I cheated on my taxes, you know? And so it was was very much a, f a function of what is what is the image of other people have of me and what is my image of myself. Mm -hmm. So the, the bottom line, I'm sorry this is taking so long, know, is, that, is that I, I go up and I fill out the little form on the airplane, you know, when I'm entering back into the United States. And I put down the $12,000 and the, the customs guy asked me, what's that? And so I just told him the story I just told you. I didn't expect this. I didn't talk about my agonizing. <laughs> 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 and the guy looked at me and laughed at me. Yeah. He literally laughed at me right at that point. So that was my reward. Yes. So anyway, so that's 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 my story on tax compliance. At least you didn't call over like other officers to laugh at you too. Right. <laughs> I'm sure he told the story to all his buddies, but yeah. oh, uh, so there you go. So, so there you go. So I think that has a lot to do with the experiment mm -hmm. uh, in that in that it is it is what other people think of you is more important than the descriptive norm. And perhaps, Seth, you can explain the mm -hmm. difference between a descriptive and injunctive norm. Okay. Yeah, definitely. A descriptive norm is something that is going to explain solely what the others are doing. It's not going to have any moral overtone or undertone to it. Whereas an injunctive norm will have that moral aspect to it. So a descriptive norm uh, for tax compliance, I believe in the experiment it said three out of every four Americans withhold enough taxes to fill out their tax compliance. Whereas in the injunctive norm, you can have both approval framed and disapproval framed injunctive norms. The approval framed are going to talk about the morality mm -hmm. of the decision. And so on top of a description of the amount of people who pay their taxes, 
It would also say something like 90% of people believe it's the right thing to pay their taxes and moral integrity is a reason why they believe so. The disapproval framed would have the opposite argument and talk about how people view tax cheaters Mm -hmm. as being immoral and 90 some percent of Americans feel that if you don't pay your taxes, you're cheating or you're an immoral person. And so when you add that morality component to it, that's what we found was really the key to increasing tax compliance. Mm -hmm. Purely telling people the statistics isn't enough. You have to frame it in a way that kind of touches on something more if you want to use like system one system two mm-hmm. your touches on your system one do you remember the size of the impact on how much more compliance you gained just from jumping from no morality to both the positive and negative um, injunctive norms so in the research we found that the positive and negative framed injunctive norms had the exact same effect on tax compliance, whereas the descriptive norms had no effect on tax compliance. The Mm -hmm. increase was relatively small, I believe, Mm -hmm. but when you look at the size of the IRS tax bill for all of society, say a 2% increase is millions and millions of dollars. That can billions of dollars. Yeah, Yeah, it's huge. Billions (laughs) of dollars that are now available to fund the public good. But it's sort of interesting then, we sort of like to think about ourselves as as having sort of ingrained morals Mm -hmm. and we make the moral decision or bring the morals into every decision we make. And it it sounds here like, no, we sort of have to be triggered to think about the moral aspect. Mm -hmm. Even if if we're just told what other people are doing, we can't be trusted to take the next step and think they're doing this because that's the moral thing to do. Right. That's sort of bizarre. Yeah. You know, one thing I should mention is people may not be familiar with how these laboratory experiments work. Mm-hmm. So we sort of bring in regular people and they sit down at a computer and we explain to them that all the money involved in this experiment is yours to keep. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do whatever you want in this experiment. And what they did was they got essentially a random income on the, on the round. And their earnings in this are $30, $40, so, yeah. it's, so people pay attention, and, uh, or, or 50 or 60 if we bring in people from outside the university. What happens is then they can either declare all of that income and be taxed or cheat. Mm-hmm. And if they cheat, there's a 5% probability of them getting caught, and they would have to pay the back taxes plus a 100% penalty. So they'd have to pay twice as much as they would have if they didn't cheat with 5% odds. Mm-hmm. And it was set up so that you were, you would actually make more money in the experiment by cheating, given the <laughs> low number of times you're likely to be audited, because we did this for 20, 30 mm-hmm. rounds. Which so, might actually be accurate. Yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. So, so you would you would definitely make more money if you, on average, if you if you cheated in the experiment, and yet the vast eighty percent, approximately, of the people paid their quote taxes. Now, you know, we and, and they referred to this. You know, they saw clearly that this was a simulation of the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't give them other than these little statements about people in in the United States think it's important to pay your taxes right. and it's the right thing to do and yeah. uh, don't disapprove of it. But they brought their sort of real-world emotions and feelings into the laboratory. Mm-hmm. So it was very similar to what data we have on the real world that the vast majority of Americans pay their taxes. Now, 
I want to contrast that with Italy and France and many other countries <laughs> that really think this is a game and they, and they literally brag to other people about cheating. You know, it's cool. Oh, I did this and this and this and, you know, and I... You know, it's a, in Italy and France and some other countries, uh, whereas in the United States, if David were to tell us about how he cheated on his taxes, not that he would do it on a podcast, <laughs> nor would he, nor would he as a person, we would actually, we would actually think less of you, right? We, I mean, you know, that's the, it's the social norm to be right. a, a good American and, and pay your taxes. So uh, an interesting thing about this, the countries that are best at paying taxes are seem to be mostly English-speaking. New Zealand, Australia, England, the United States, Canada, we find very high compliance rates compared to some some other other countries. And, huh. So perhaps that's something that was transmitted through the sort of British culture. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. So, and it's also standing in line. I mean, I my last name is Schultze, so I have a German background, mm-hmm. and I was shocked when I got in airplane lines, you know, when an airplane was delayed or something, Instead of an orderly line, Germans, at least the last time I was in a, in a mob, it, they sort of mobbed the counter and women and children were stomped. And I'm not anti-German or anything, but I'm just <laughs> saying that they didn't have the same kind of polite, you know, old ladies go for, you know. So, right. so I think that has some, may have something to do with it because we find all these cultures uh, that oh, have yeah. some tie to Britain seem to have this. We will we, we'll respect a line. Yes, we'll, right. We'll, yeah, that's right. And, and yeah, you travel around the world that is not true most places <laughs> economically maybe um, related as well and just like our history and being more comfortable with the state providing or I, is there any of that you see and just like in different poverty rates or anything like that as felt as far as these countries being wealthier than others around the world so it's a good question anything like that would be sort of tangled up in this yeah. this sort of uh, shared culture right because Britain had such an influence over most to the world Mm -hmm. in some respects so it's yeah it'd be hard to find out it'd be interesting to see like caribbean countries tax Mm -hmm. compliance rates because since they're also most of them are english speaking at one point or another under british control just to see at what point does the is it about the general wealth of the nation or is it really just this cultural ingrainment that came from mm-hmm. like more colonial sense yeah. of yeah. more systematic trust? You're, you're working with Cal, right? Yes. One of our other professors, Calvin Turvey, he does a lot of work in China, mm-hmm. and it would be very interesting because by by the way, I should mention my co-authors on the original experiment: uh, Jim Alm, Mike McKee, Carrie Von Bose from Forest Marsh Group, and uh, Jubo Yan who happens to hail from China, he's now teaching in in Singapore, Uh, he tells me that there's a lot of tax cheating in China. Hmm. So it'd be fascinating to replicate some of these tax experiments in China. Uh, And you just gave me a new research idea, or you can have that research idea. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a blast to try that out. I I haven't looked at tax, but we did a bunch of trust experiments in China, Uh and you found huge differences in urban areas versus rural areas, where if, if you had sort of poorer folks in the rural areas, they were extremely trustworthy. You uh-huh. give them money and you say, we're, we're going to, we need this back. They'll give it back to you. 
right? Yeah. If you go to the wealthier areas in Beijing, you say, we, we need this back, and it's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get maybe a nickel back on every dollar. Wow. Right? I mean, it's huge differences, but I, w- I wonder if that would translate into tax compliance. Well, that might make a really interesting to parallel mm-hmm. one, of the, one of these tax experiments and, and do the same thing in... Uh, in China, yeah. uh, we we actually the the latest programming we're doing is in a new web based software platform, Otree. Oh, so yeah. you, you could even, you could easily yeah. run it. Well, I don't know if there's a, how how good is the internet connection between <laughs> Cornell and China? You could, you could do it in Beijing, <laughs> <laughs> right? So anyway, so that's just an idea because there are likely to be large cultural differences mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. tax compliance. Yeah. For for example, I think it's important to kind of think about the social norms that you're representing will most likely have to be a reasonably, if not totally true, representation right. of the society. For example, uh, the Italians and the French, if you tell them 80% of people <laughs> comply and and 80% of people believe it's the right thing to do, right. they'll read that and laugh and maybe even cheat even more. Be like, oh, they, this is a lie. And yeah, they, yeah. they know it. So I think it's important that the social norms really are representing the ideals of the society. Right. I think just basically the compliance rate mm-hmm. itself without the social norms would be interesting to look at yeah. in, in uh, China and, uh, and the U.S. Or, or, or Italy and the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or France and the U.S. I just want to jump back to the injunctive norms really quick because I thought it was interesting that positive and negative both had a similar effect. And in behavioral economics, we have this notion of loss aversion and that we kind of, I think, a negative, negative, the value function of a negative thing or something that you lose would be weighed more highly or more valuable than the positive. So my question to you guys is why do you think that here in this circumstance under this kind of frame, you think that both positive and negative had a similar effect size? I think first it's important to think about the fact that this is just an experiment in a lab and it may not this is just one first step in Mm -hmm. a longer step of processes you need to go through to really tease out the exact effects and I also think here you're talking within the differences between the two norms you're talking about values moral values and not necessarily dollar gains and losses and so they're just kind of different ways of phrasing that, like, people's, I guess, the norms of the society and not so much about your personal gains or losses. This is, I think it has more emotional connection mm-hmm. and not so much any pure value. Right, so you don't just get morality points and can, get can I disagree points taken away. Yes. 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 <laughs> so, so I think what's going on is the actual act of cheating on your taxes in our culture involves some sense of guilt. And guilt is loss aversion. So I should pay 100% of my taxes, which is a reference point in prospect theory, of course. And if I pay less than 100%, Right, I feel guilty for doing that. So the loss aversion, and you actually tested that mm-hmm. in the way you framed it a little differently than the original paper did. So I think what's going on is you have to multiply that by the guilt coefficient. How guilty do you feel relative to how much you're cheating, mm-hmm. right? And I think both the positive and the negative are affecting, since it's always negative, the act of cheating right. in this culture is a negative act, 
right? Yeah. It's culturally viewed as a negative act. You're actually affecting the coefficient, how guilty I feel. And so I think that's different than a direct loss or gain. I think it's either one of those is making that my guilt coefficient for cheating, which apparently was pretty big when I was coming back from Venezuela. <laughs> you know, no matter how I thought about it, I, you know, I, I ended up feeling guiltier, you know. So yeah. That was... yeah. This might be a little more technical question than, than uh, we want to go too far into, but how did it operate? I mean, when, when uh, people responded to the, uh, the injunctive norm, did they respond by cheating less on the margin? In other words, not, you know, by maybe not complying, but paying a little bit more than they would otherwise, or did they just start to comply fully? <laughs> well, you want me to, okay. So one of the shocking things here is that this turns out to be a bang, bang problem. You know, there's basically the vast majority of people either don't cheat at all yeah. or cheat as much as they can. Okay. In other words, so in other words, it, it, it is it is essentially they're saying I'm either going to cheat or I'm not going to cheat. Well, if I'm if I'm going to cheat, mm -hmm. I should really go for it. So <laughs> and and mathematically, it implies things are linear in some sense. So you either go to one extreme or the other. If you're going to cheat, why fool around? Yeah, okay. You know, uh, since the and if you mathematically look at it, you know the 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 optimal solution is to declare no, none of your randomly determined income, right? right? That's that's what you should do on each round. Yeah. And people who have a moral value, well, do I feel less guilty if I cheat 50% <laughs> or, you know, once I've cheated, you know, I've kind of, you know, I feel bad. <laughs> I so cheated it's all like, the way. A, yeah, yeah exactly. I'm either going to do it or not. So, that, so, so I think what it had to have done was shifted people from one to the other. Okay. Okay. You're more likely to give all or, or pay all your taxes or not. So it's really shifting it in kind of this. So, so people really do seem to be perceiving it as a zero one. I cheat mm -hmm. or I don't cheat. Right. They don't. In, in fact, in later experiments, there were so few people who were in the middle, and I'll talk about them momentarily, that uh, we, we now just ask, do you want to give all or nothing or, or <laughs> declare all or nothing? Because okay. it, because now, who are the people in the middle? And what you have is a people are either zero or everything, right? They declare nothing or, or their whole income, right? And then there's a people, people in the middle, and they're absolutely uniformly distributed. They're uniformly distributed across. And that is called in psychology, random choice. In other words, I don't understand this experiment at all. I'm just going to put a random number in, in, in it. And we see this in survey answers. They're called floaters. They're just people yeah. who don't put any effort. There are lots of examples in the real world where we all make random choices because we don't want to spend the time reading the labels on the toothpaste box mm -hmm. when we're in France and we forgot our toothpaste. And that's in French, so we can't read it anyway. So we just randomly... Pick, pick a toothpaste in the airport, right? And hope uh, it's really toothpaste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very good. So that sort of, I wonder if that would be the case if the penalties, or I shouldn't say the penalties, if the probability of being caught was proportional to your, you know, the amount you're cheating. Yeah, that might change it. That's, right. Huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But you're, in, in the U.S., you're either audited, you either... Violated or not, the yeah. the penalties are proportional because you you know you pay pay a penalty based on how much you cheated. Was that the same in the experiment? The penalties were would also have been proportional. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, you have something in the paper called the boomerang effect, and that might be 
um, what you guys said, why you didn't see much of a difference in, in people's adjustment and in, in compliance. Can you guys explain what the boomerang effect is and results from it? Yeah, definitely. So the boomerang effect could be one reason that the descriptive norms had no effect because the idea of a boomerang effect is you put out a number and the classic experiment on the boomerang effect, there was an average energy usage that was included on everybody's energy bill in a neighborhood. And you either had a thumbs up or a thumbs down, depending on if you were using too much or too little energy compared to your average neighbor. The positive effect of this experiment was those who are using too much energy actually did decrease their energy. So they started to comply with the norm. They're like, oh, we're using too much compared to everybody else. We don't want to be exceptionally bad. We'll move towards the average. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, and this is the boomerang effect, those who were being very energy efficient already saw it. Oh, all of my neighbors are using more energy than me. I may as well leave the windows open and run the AC now too. I'm a and, sucker. Yeah. <laughs> and they increase their energy. And so the net effect of that ends up being nothing. Right. And we think that could be an issue with just using a descriptive norm without pushing the morality of the decision as well. People are latching onto that norm and trying and going closer to it, kind of like a point of interest. Yeah. yeah. Like an anchoring effect. Anchoring, so, exactly. Some people aspiring to be part of the 20%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, very good. So we've talked a lot about compliance and how it can really differ across different nations and cultures. Are there any kind of summary points that you guys want to leave with our listeners about what's coming maybe in the future with your research or things that you've really taken away from from these experiments? Well, for me, I would say just the idea of the power of social norms is what has stuck with me the most. And like tax compliance is a major issue and it there's direct benefits for everybody from increasing tax compliance but the idea that social norms especially ones that are tied to morals can influence and nudge behavior is a powerful thought and i think whether you're an administrator who is trying to understand your workers dynamics or really any issue that involves trying to change behavior the idea that social norms and especially injunctive social norms can have a powerful effect there, can leave the door open to a lot of uh, beneficial applications in all sorts of uh, industries or different areas. I think this is an example where behavioral research is likely to have an impact because the, the uh, it's very likely that the IRS will actually utilize this idea because it costs essentially nothing to have an, another line printed on the tax forms. And uh, for people who prepare their own taxes, that will be quite effective. The question is whether TurboTax will uh, will put that little line up there or, or be required to do that is a, is, is a question. But the forms themselves, I think that's a very inexpensive way of achieving tax compliance in a way that doesn't involve scaring Americans about auditing and putting them through a rather miserable experience, doing it in a positive way rather than a, rather than a negative way, which could raise literally billions of dollars. So It seems to me, I mean, that it'd be hard to work out the welfare effects, but it seems to me that this is, this is potentially a net social gain to having moral standards and having, having the morals sort of up front in this process. 
Absolutely. Well, having stood in that line in Germany at an airline <laughs> counter, I think I think the we'll call it the British way of standing politely in line is is a social improvement, as you said. There's a welfare gain <laughs> instead of in sort of politeness. So yeah, very good. With that, be aware when you're traveling. <laughs> Hold your stance. Thank you all for listening to Mad Hat Economics. Thank you so much, Bill and Seth, for joining us today. We we really hope to have you guys both back on. Thanks for having us. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you all. And as always, our podcast is directed by our technical producer, Liam Wicks-Doe. Thank you, Liam. You can find us on Twitter at Mad Hat Economics, or feel free to drop us an email at madhatecon at gmail.com. That's M-A-D-H-A-T-E-C-O-N at gmail.com. Thanks so much. <laughs>